Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Bottom of the hour, my buddy David Limbaugh is coming by. And yes, he actually is a friend. And we're going to talk to him about his new book, Guilty by Reason of Insanity, Why the Democrats Must Not Win. New book out. I also want to talk to him about Jesus is Risen. You know, David has written a number of religious books. Uh, I want to talk to him about those as well. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program today, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-74. Across the state of Georgia this morning, it is rather chilly. Uh, it is, let's see, uh, in, I should have done this a little while ago, shouldn't I? I've had an update. Yes, uh, Clarksville, Rome, Blue Ridge, all in the mid-40s. Adairsville in the mid-40s. Uh, you have to get down to South Georgia for it to get above the 40s. Uh, Vidalia, Valdosta, Eastman, Douglas, all above 50 degrees right now. It's going to be a chilly, chilly week here. Uh, you, you check with your local weather forecast around the state as this cold front really pushes through later this week. I mean, I, in Macon, we're looking at the mid-20s uh, for overnight lows around Wednesday. It's going to be chilly throughout the state. Uh, right now, I want to discuss Nikki Haley. Uh, she is making lots of news. Now, I need to give you some full disclosure here. Nikki Haley is actually a, a longtime friend of mine. In fact, just on the other side of the door that you cannot see if you're watching the stream. Oh, by the way, so I figured out how to do the, the live stream of the show on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn, which I didn't even know was a thing, uh, all at the same time. So you can watch it there, but you should be listening to your local radio station. Uh, on the other side of my studio door is a plant. Uh, several years ago, I wound up in the hospital for two weeks. Uh, very, really nearly died. And uh, Nikki and, and her husband sent me a, a very nice plant, uh, and it is one of the few plants I have managed to not kill. It is very resilient, very much like uh, Nikki Haley herself. Uh, I have known uh, her and Michael for, gosh, a decade or more. Um, went over, in fact, when Sarah Palin endorsed her, got to announce them on the stage of the Capitol steps in South Carolina when she was running for governor a decade ago. Uh, just She's a good friend, very much like her, and uh, my kids adore her, and she is under all sorts of attack today for statements she made uh, to the media about the president, the phone call with Ukraine, and what others within the administration tried to get her to do. I, I want to play this for you. And then we need to discuss the implications here because there are implications larger than Nikki Haley in all of this. And then the Secretary of State Tillerson went on to tell you the reason he resisted the president's decisions was because if he didn't, people would die. Do you memorialize that conversation? It definitely happened? It absolutely happened. And instead of saying that to me, they should have been saying that to the president, not asking me to join them on their sidebar plan. It should have been, go tell the president what your differences are and quit if you don't like what he's doing. But to undermine a president is really a very dangerous thing. And it goes against the Constitution and it goes against what the American people want. And it was was offensive. That was her allegation that John Kelly and H.R. McMaster wanted her to undermine the president's agenda. By the way, I, I got to say, just as an aside, this does give some... Um, it gives some evidence that the whistleblower had a perspective within the national security apparatus uh, that uh, the, the one of the claims that the anonymous writer who worked or works within the White House is going to make 
is that the 25th Amendment was an option, that there was pressure on Mike Pence, that people really believe Mike Pence was going to do it. This sounds like someone who lived in the world of the national security apparatus with inside the White House, uh, the H.R. McMaster, John Kelly world, who really did try to throw out the president uh, through it through an internal 25th Amendment process. But what that also suggests, though, given Nikki Haley's reaction there, and, and she's willing to come out in the book and say this. And by the way, thus far, um, McMaster and um, McMaster and Kelly have not come out and said anything, but um, we can expect a, a, a vigorous denial from them I, if if they want to deny it. I don't know. But what really has people upset this morning is this uh, from Nikki Haley. Do you think ultimately the president will be impeached and removed from office? No. On what? You're going to impeach a president for asking for a favor that didn't happen and and giving money and it wasn't withheld i don't know what you would impeach him on I mean, look Nora, impeachment is like the death penalty for a public official when you look at the transcript there's nothing in that transcript that warrants the death penalty for the president and i think that to be clear it was not a complete transcript there are still things that are missing from it and in that he does say i would like you to do us a favor though the Ukrainians never did the investigation, and the president released the funds. I mean, when you look at those, there's just nothing impeachable there. And more than that, I think the, the biggest thing that bothers me is the American people should decide this. Why do we have a bunch of people in Congress making this decision? Why do we have a bunch of people in Congress making this decision? There is a lot of anger about that this morning uh, regarding Nikki Haley. I, I got to tell you, the pundits are savaging Nikki Haley, particularly right of center pundits who do not like Donald Trump are really upset with Nikki Haley this morning. But it's not just them. And, and you need to know it's not just them. It is also a right of center pundits and the Twitterati who love Donald Trump and, and resent Nikki Haley because she wasn't on board in the primary. It is a no-win situation for people like Nikki Haley uh, when the pundits want purity. You know, I, so I find myself, if you know anything about me, uh, let, let me let me give you a little bit of background here because I, I realize I've only been on air with uh, most of you for a few months. Um, back in 2004, some friends of mine started redstate.com. They brought me on board. It was redstate.org. Uh, we, we changed it to redstate.com. I took over the helm of Red State very early on. Uh, we grew it into the most influential right of center blog on Capitol Hill, everybody read us. Uh, the Bush administration would come in and push back. And, and over the years, I, I helped run a number of insurgent campaigns for office through the pages of Red State, pushing uh, candidates. For example, Mike Lee, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Nikki Haley, uh, Rand Paul, and others. And I, I have always been savage, including internally by the parent company that owned Red State, always savaged by people for being all about purity. I was too pure. And it wasn't an issue of being too pure in my mind. It was an issue of getting these guys to keep their promises. They say they're the party of smaller government. They should be the party of smaller government. So I, as the guy who for years have been savaged, including by, by folks close to Mitch McConnell, he and I have a love-hate relationship. We love to hate each other. I've been a, a savage for years for purity. 
by a lot of people in politics, and here I find myself laughing um, at at the purity demanded by the Twitterati, and I use Twitterati specifically because it is people with access to Twitter who are complaining about Nikki Haley. I want to give you a snapshot of this. In fact, easy to access for yourself so you can see it all for yourself at uh, theresurgent.com. I left Red State a few years ago, started The Resurgent, uh, and I put up a piece. It's got a screenshot of two separate tweets one from uh, someone on the right who loves donald trump one from someone on the right who hates donald trump and they're both talking about nikki haley uh the the first tweet is uh rich higgins he worked inside the white house for a while uh someone says my apologies but please uh, do share why you have such animus for nikki haley uh, and he replies, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, Venezuela, Korea, immigration, and on and on. She is not MAGA. And then Marshall Power Locke, uh, who also, he is is right of center, but does not like the president. He would be, I guess you'd classify him as never Trump. Uh, he says, as William Rusher said, politicians will always disappoint you. Yes, Nikki Haley has done damage to her reputation. She is from the crooked, crooked timber of humanity. After all, I don't know if she's being too clever or too dumb right now. She no longer has the benefit of my doubt. She can't win the situation. If Nikki Haley were to come out, you you like President Trump. President Trump is the only thing standing between you and Elizabeth Warren right now. And Nikki Haley were to come out and say what he did was wrong, he should be impeached. What what do you think would happen? One, um, she would be marginalized for the rest of her life. She would not be on, on the forefront. You would burn her down, metaphorically speaking. Um, You would do that because you like President Trump and she betrayed him. If you don't like President Trump, if you don't like President Trump and you hear Nikki Haley, you want to burn her down because you think she should have been clear. Um, And that's a problem because Nikki Haley's got a life in politics. Um, Yes, I am. I am dodging because I have to text my wife something very important. (laughs) Um, Nikki Haley is a politician. Nikki Haley's career is in politics. Nikki Haley's career being in politics means that she has to take positions sometimes you don't like in order to keep herself relevant and moving forward in the right direction. There will come a time when Donald Trump is term limited from office or he will lose. Now, for those of you who like Donald Trump, if he loses, then there's a problem. Uh, If Donald Trump loses, then it suggests that no one could beat the left because most people who support Donald Trump believe no one but Donald Trump could win. I mean, this is the, the issue with Mike Pence, is it not? A lot of Republicans can't come to the terms on impeachment because they think if Pence gets it, Pence can't win. And those are Donald Trump supporters. And then there are those who don't like Donald Trump. And they want everyone on the right to destroy Donald Trump. They want everyone on the right to denounce Donald Trump. Friends, Donald Trump is going to leave. He's either going to lose in 2020 or he's going to be term limited in 2024 if he, he, if he wins re-election. Do you know who's not going away? And I'm not talking about Nikki Haley. Do you know who's not going away? Donald Trump's voters are not going away. 
Now, if Donald Trump loses in 2020, they may decide the gig is up. America's lost. Time to go move somewhere else, move to Costa Rica, something. They're going to drop out of the political process. I, I do believe a lot of these people are going to be burned, although many of them nurse such grievances. I think they'll think that Donald Trump was betrayed by everyone, and they'll be even madder in 2024. And if Donald Trump loses in 2020, it'll take until 2028 to find someone who can rebuild a Republican coalition because these people want to burn it all down without Donald Trump, and he'll help on his Twitter account, undoubtedly. But the voters are going to stay. So those of you who are mad at Nikki Haley for saying what she said, why? Why? Do you think ultimately the president will be impeached and removed from office? No. On what? You're going to impeach a president for asking for a favor that didn't happen and and giving money and it wasn't withheld, I don't know what you would impeach him on. And look, Nora, impeachment is like the death penalty for a public official. When you look at the transcript, there's nothing in that transcript that warrants the death penalty for the president. And I think that... To be clear, it was not a complete transcript. There are still things that are missing from it. And in that, he does say, I would like you to do us a favor, though. The Ukrainians never did the investigation. And the president released the funds. I mean, when you look at those, there's just nothing impeachable there. And I'll stop it there. Those of you who want the president impeached and are mad at Nikki Haley, you never wanted the president elected anyway. You, I mean, you, you didn't. And not only did you not want the president elected anyway, and, and by the way, I was with you at the time. I didn't want him elected. But I've come to terms with the fact that I got the election wrong. He's done more for me and, and for conservatives than I thought he would. Uh, I've got serious issues with his character, but given him or Elizabeth Warren, I'm taking him any day of the week. But you haven't, and you're angry. You're angry at people like me for saying, you know what, don't particularly care for the guy, but uh, him or the Democrats, I'll go with him. And, and you're upset. You're, you're willing to sit on the sidelines. But the problem is that you're willing to take out everyone else as well and make them sit on the sidelines, whether they want to or not. You don't want to be a part of the fight and you're pissed off. They're still part of the fight. They're trying to find ways to navigate. Every single American right now is muddling through. None of us have lived in a political age like we're living in right now. For you to decide that you are the moral authority who will decide that these politicians must say exactly what you want or else when that means that their career will be over, who are you going to have left after Donald Trump is gone? Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Matt Gatz, who? Some people look at the world differently from you and decide, you know what? We got to have some people out there who... They're the closest we can get to the old normal. The old normal, many of us want to go back to. But to do that, they still have to maintain uh, some allegiance to the president, not because of the president, because of his voters. Nikki Haley can't win on the other side. Trump's voters hate her because they remember the primary. Uh, and right after the election, Nikki Haley uh, said things that they took as criticism of the president. And, and the cultists out there, and there are people in a cult of personality regarding Obama and Trump and others, but the, the people in the Trump cult, they still, to this day, will not forgive Nikki Haley for criticizing President Trump on the campaign trail and right after he won election, his election. Remember, after he won, Nikki Haley said things that were critical. While she was his UN ambassador, she said things that were perceived as critical. And these people believe she is disloyal to him. You believe she's disloyal to the Constitution. She can't win. And 
Those of you who don't like the president, you're making it harder for anyone on the right. Because there will be those, you know who they are, within the president's cult of personality who will show no grace to anyone. When the president leaves, they will immediately go to Donald Trump Jr. They will. The question is, are you going to open a space for people who don't necessarily agree with the president but understand they still need to build a coalition with part of his base? And right now it seems like a lot of you aren't. That's going to be a problem. That's going to be a serious problem moving forward. If you can't let some of these politicians be and you denounce them every time they say something that disappoints you. Listen, we all got to have a lot more grace these days in politics, particularly on the right. Uh, Those of you particularly who don't care for the president, if you're going to burn them all down and show no grace to any of them, you're going to have no party. None. No one will fit the bill for you except people who possibly cannot win. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, David Limbaugh will be joining me right now, though, and we'll take your phone calls on Nikki Haley. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, Democrats are having their own purity test right now. A lot of, lot of Democrats now started to come out and say they're unhappy with Mike Bloomberg. Now, for perspective, this is several weeks into the Our Candidates Suck narrative. You had a bunch of people come out and say, our candidates suck. Uh, We've got to find better people. Mike Bloomberg comes out and says, hey, uh, what about me? And now they're like, "Uh, nope, he sucks too. The real billionaire, the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, preparing a potential run. He is the real deal of what Trump purports to be. He's probably the most, certainly the most successful businessman in New York, one of the five or ten most successful businessmen in the country. Truth is, if he stands on a stage with Donald Trump, I think he matches up very well. He's actually a businessman. He's actually a billionaire. He's actually a philanthropist. He's all the things that Trump pretends to be. In the smoke-filled room, you'd say, on paper, Bloomberg has the right balance of what you want to win a broad election. The bumper sticker for Michael Bloomberg is Donald Trump, but richer, more successful, and less offensive. How much money? Let's put it up. Let's put it up. Can't get enough of this graphic. So we're talking about the war between the billionaires, and look at the net worth. Uh, clearly, uh, Bloomberg is a lot richer than President Trump is uh, those and billions. me. Billions. As we know, Donald Trump has prided himself on uh, what he views as his business acumen, his business success, being a wealthy man. Well, that's something that Michael Bloomberg clearly brings to the table. It really could pose a threat to Trump, who is not likely to be happy that there's another billionaire, a real billionaire on the scene. Look, I think that for the president on a bunch of different levels, that's scary in a general election. The chances of a brokered convention have increased if Bloomberg is serious about this. Trump is the ultimate charlatan, is the ultimate fake. He can peel that emperor's clothes off of Trump just about better than anybody. I think this is huge, huge news, and I do think he's an electable candidate. That was the media coverage right when Bloomberg gets in. Well, the Democratic handlers got to all of these members of the press and the Democrats who were fawning over Bloomberg. (laughs) Listen to this. Back now with Endgame. Yamish, I want to play here. The welcome uh, that Michael Bloomberg got from his fellow primary <laughs> opponents. Let's just say it wasn't very warm. Take a listen. 
This is a stark difference from someone that can just come in and plop down checks and buy a bunch of ads. Um, I think people are going to see through it. I think that our elections should not be something that are bought by billionaires. So tonight we say to Michael Bloomberg and other billionaires, sorry, you ain't going to buy this election. They're coming out swinging on him. They're not happy. Uh, That's just absolutely hilarious to watch the total meltdown of the Democrats right now. Uh, And the media is now turning on Bloomberg as well. There are actually headlines in the New York Times and Politico today that voters don't seem excited by Michael Bloomberg. He's only been in for three days. When we come back, David Limbaugh joins me to talk about his new book. Well, I said David was going to be joining me. Uh, He has not yet called in. Uh, He's calling in to us. Uh, So we are awaiting him calling in. Uh, Until then, I will move on to other things. And in fact, I want to uh, spend a little more time on the Bloomberg issue here as the Democrats continue their great meltdown. Uh, David Ignatius also on Meet the Press over the weekend. Let let me play you one more time this clip that I played on the way out. uh, Meet the Press. Uh, as Chuck Todd comes back. Back now with Endgame. Yamish, uh, I want to play here the welcome uh, that Michael Bloomberg got from his fellow primary opponents. Let's just say it wasn't very warm. Take a listen. This is a stark difference from someone that can just come in and plop down checks and buy a bunch of ads. Um, I think people are going to see through it. I think that our elections should not be something that are bought by billionaires. So tonight we say to Michael Bloomberg and other billionaires, sorry, you ain't going to buy this election. Yeah, they're they're all after him. Um, Just to to respond here, let let me play the response of Yamish uh, Alcindor on Meet the Press to Chuck Todd after playing that so you get a sense of where the Democrats, where the progressives are headed. Interestingly, both Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg didn't have harsh uh, reactions to that the way other candidates did. Especially for progressive candidates, they see Michael Bloomberg's money as the number one Achilles heel that he has. Um, The problem is, of course, that all of that money means that he can also, in some ways, buy ads and really start to become competitive. Now, he is obviously very, very late, but I had someone say to me, look, it's not like Michelle Obama got into the race. It's not as if this is going to shift completely everything that's happening. But remember that President Trump, even though he was at that time a front runner, he skipped the debate and continued to still have momentum. And that's the message that I think people around Bloomberg are saying that even though he's late, he could probably still have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, he, he may still have a chance. He's going to find that the Democrats suddenly turn his success into a liability. You know, the, there is one thing we should note about Mike Bloomberg getting into the race. Uh, he's never actually run as a Democrat. And after Rudy Giuliani, he ran as a Republican. Um, the Democratic field was crowded. And so he ran up the field as a Republican. And he's never had a bunch of challenges. And increasingly, the Democrats, and listen, Mike Bloomberg is of the left. He's a gun control zealot who wanted to restrict people's lives in New York City and wants to around the country as well. But even him, for all his progressiveness, he's not as insane as so many of the other Democrats. That is a perfect segue, actually, uh, as David Limbaugh joins me here on The Eric Erickson Show. David, how are you? 
Eric, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk to you about this, and I'm, I'm going to totally ambush you about some of your other books, too, just full disclosure okay. here. Uh, but out of the gate, your new book is out, and they sent the copy, just so you know, they sent a review copy to my office instead of the house, and I hadn't been up there in a while, so I had to go buy my own copy of your book. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm always glad to buy. In fact, I, you sent me uh, one of your last books, and I went out and bought a copy and then wound up buying copies for everybody for Christmas in my family. Oh, it was so nice. good. Thank um, you. So this one, Guilty by Reason of Insanity, Why the Democrats Must Not Win. <laughs> I love the title, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So let's delve into this. Uh, your case against the Democrats is is largely the case I've been telling people uh, who question why I've decided I would support the president in 2020 is he's he's delivered way more than I expected and the Democrats have lost their minds. Yeah, uh, or they're just finally admitting where they have been for a long time. I don't know, but yeah, they're 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 so extreme, objectively extreme, on issues of identity politics, and which includes, of course, race, gender, and class, and other things. The way they're exploiting race, we could get into that. They're open borders, almost outright open borders. If not, uh, and I, it, let me just back up. Open borders, abortion to the, uh, on demand through the point of birth and beyond. Uh, they're uh, outright now socialists, many of them. I mean, all, the, the main Democrats running are openly socialists. Now, some like uh, Elizabeth Warren will pretend she's not a socialist and then proceed to prove that she's even more socialist <laughs> right. than Bernie Sanders when you examine her absurd, unsustainable, fantastical programs. And, and they're they're authoritarian. They're intolerant. It, it it's really it, it, it. What I've said to people is if if they if if the Democrats seize control of and it's appropriate term seize in our constitutional republic for their mentality. If they seize control of the two political branches in 2020, I don't think our kids will enjoy the same America that you and I grew up with. Now I know I've kind of said that all along. Every election is the most important. I do think every election up to this point has been the most important, but now it's a crescendo. It's a climax. It's serious. I don't know that there's much turning back short of a revolution if they get control, if they get substantial control, because they don't have any restraints uh, on, and, and they're, they're, they don't see America as we see it. Well, it, it, you talk in the book uh, about the Antifa shock troops that they're using, and it, you know, this reminds me to some degree, um, it, your discussion there of uh, Wilson in the Wilson administration essentially used thugs to harass and intimidate the press and others, and the Democrats have gone full circle to this with Antifa. Yeah, and, and even if, if the your friends, your Democratic friends and my Democratic friends would say, uh, we don't authorize that, they, they're, sewage, they're, they're on their own, and we don't do that. But it's it's that kind of mentality. They're running Sarah Huckabee Sanders out of the Red Hen right. restaurant. They're keeping conservatives from speaking without any qualms. They, they, they don't have any problem. They're, they're, and they're not just doing it through the agency of government. They're using they're doing it in the private sector. The social media giants, which are accumulating so much power, have disproportionately. In fact, it's not even close censored conservatives, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Google, uh, so it's there. It's there's a common thread that they are selective in in their liberties and their granting of liberties. And the private sector is so powerful now. It's not government. 
but it doesn't give rise to First Amendment, prote- Amendment protections because you don't have state action. And so, but yet it's still a threat to our liberty. And I, I don't know. Uh, it's not just Antifa, though. It's it's all it's 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 a mentality that courses through uh, their entire culture. Late night TV comedy is turned into hate conservatism. They're not even funny anymore because all right. they do is. Yeah, pan-conservatism, it's obsessive. Everything is political on the left, everything. Well, you know, if if I could weave back in here, and let me tie it to an earlier book of yours, uh, Crimes Against Liberty. It was a, the one about Barack Obama. And there, there, there's a very similar thing that, that is even more amplified now. Almost you can see the Democrats having evolved from yeah. when you wrote that back, I guess, in 2010, 2011, uh, right. that it, the government is a tool to use to, to silence critics and, and this overall threat to liberty. Yeah, and Obama, you know, we don't know if he was directly involved, but his IRS, but his right. administration sick the IRS on political opponents. Now, think about how horrific that is, and they don't think anything of it. Now you've got uh, the, for a long time, people were saying the deep state is behind the Trump thing, and then a lot of these people who hate Trump on our side would say, no, there's no way that that happened. And now we're seeing it actually did happen. The entire thing with the Russia thing was absolute fabrication. There, even Mueller couldn't come up with a, right. with a, a collusion connection. And yet there has been no accountability. Schiff said he had objective evidence, empirical evidence, to show that Trump colluded. And now when, when, when even Mueller refused or is unable to support and substantiate, he just pivots to Ukraine. Now, we could talk about Ukraine, but that's not the point. It's, they consider Trump a walking high crime and misdemeanor, and they've just been looking for some scintilla of evidence to support their predetermined conclusion. But nobody ever holds them accountable. And it is even when I first heard that there was some deep state conspiracy that fabricated this, this Fusion GPS uh, dossier, I didn't even believe it. Come on, that's too good to be true from our perspective. Right. Too yeah. good to be true. That, 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 and it's true. And, and, and I, I really and I think some of the people that hate Trump, even on our side, still don't believe it. They're still uh, believing the, the the presuppositions that they had and that, that this is just all made up, that this is just more of Trump counterpunching and making things up. But but Devin Nunes is an honorable man. And this this the stuff that he discovered I, I, I and, the, and the things that are going on now, I, I it's horrific to think about what's going on and how they're trying to undermine Trump, whether you agree with him or not. Well, and you know that that's one of the 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 issues that I, I know you've written about this in the past in, in your syndicated columns and in your books as well that it, it's understandable why conservatives to some degree are 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 grasping in some cases at straws and in other times they're grasping at things that turn out to be real and so many people dismiss them of because you can't even trust the media in this for, to give you the actual truth. For example, uh, Brian Stetler at CNN still to this day refuses to cover a- a- ABC News and the Epstein stuff from last week. Yeah, and or Anderson Cooper embedding in his question of Joe Biden, uh, Mr. Biden, your your son was wrongfully accused of misconduct, <laughs> wrongfully accused. So tell us about instead of saying your son was accused of this, what do you say? That, that, that's the kind of bias that's so flagrant uh, from the media. And I and I watch some of these guys like Jake Tapper, and Jake Tapper seems like a nice guy and seems honorable, and and all these people. But they're ultimately uh, all in the same barrel, and that barrel is an echo chamber that sees conservatism as evil and conservatives as evil. 
Eric, I mean, when you look at the, the identity, I know I'm shifting and stream of consciousness. That's all right. When you, when you look at uh, the, the politics that the, the left is engaging in, and I think the Democratic Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of the, the extreme left now. Think about, and this really bothers me, abortion, abortion by itself is enough to forever discredit the de- modern Democratic Party because we're talking murder of millions of people and not just murder, we're talking about the glorification of it, lighting up buildings pink and shout your abortion. But think about their politics, their identity politics, their attitude toward race. They tell people and they've convinced people that, including minorities and blacks, that the reason conservatives, the reason Trump wants to guard the border is not national sovereignty. It is not to have an orderly flow of immigration. It's not to teach people who come in in an orderly way to love the country, teach them civics lessons, and, and have them assimilate into society, become patriotic Americans. No, it's because we don't like people who don't look like us, which, by the way, is a paraphrase of what Obama always said, meaning it's, it's code for we're racist. And the only reason we're doing this is because we're racist. And then you look at the polls, and you'll find that an overwhelming majority of the Democrats believe that conservatives, by virtue of their conservatism, are racist. This is the destructive rhetoric that has torn our fabric apart. And, of course, blacks who put their trust, by and large, politically, in the Democratic Party, hear the Democrats saying over and over that we're racist, and now they believe it. And they also believe that we believe in capitalism and free markets because we're greedy. We want to help the rich. Uh, and we, we don't have any concern for the poor. So I go into deep dives in the mm-hmm. philosophical underpinnings of capitalism and socialism in this book about identity politics. By the way, one other thing, Eric, because you haven't had a chance to read the book, but you're familiar with all these concepts. Gender. We, the left now wants us to believe that gender is a matter of how a person identifies, not as biology. So it's like in Orwell's 1984, hold up four fingers and tell me it's five, and I'm not going to let you stop until you tell me. Right. That's by coercion, governmental coercion. Today, We're doing it to ourselves voluntarily by shaming, by political correct intimidation. So we're saying uh, uh, we know that a man is a man, and yet if he identifies as a woman or as a plural pronoun, uh, you have to say, you have to accept that. You have to allow biological men to encroach on women's bathrooms in their sporting events. And we're supposed to say that that's fair, and that's not objectively insane and crazy. This has nothing to do with whether I feel bad for the people that are in this place. It has to do with being forced to to declare unreality reality. It's it's insane what we're dealing with. That's why I call it insane. I actually think insanity is a euphemism for something worse, but we won't go there. (laughs) Now, all right, we we got a couple minutes left. By the way, uh, folks, I'm talking to David Limbaugh, and if you want to buy David's book, I'm making it easy for you. Text the word DATA to 33777. Get the date on this interview. You will be able to get a link by texting DATA to 33777. Uh, You'll get an Amazon link. Now, David, before you get out of here, the, the book that you sent me, and I read it, and I enjoyed it so much, I bought it for a bunch of people for Christmas, was your Jesus is risen book and I'm you and I have talked about this before that that both of us kind of drifted into theology almost as an escape from politics but really deepened faith and it was such a wonderful book and if you just you've written a number of of great books on theology out there why yeah it's interesting well partially because I became a believer in my adult years 
probably in my late thirties. I don't know. I can't pinpoint. And I was so excited. I, I was never, I never doubted God existed, but I didn't accept the God of the Bible mainly. And I go into this in my first book, Jesus on trial about my spiritual journey, mainly because I hadn't given it a chance. I haven't ever studied the arrogance of, of assuming you can know these things without ever really, I mean, I thought about stuff, but I didn't ever give the source book a, a, a trial run. I never mm-hmm. read the Bible really. Right. And so I was so excited when, when I discovered finally, like an, the, uh, that, that the Bible is true, the inspired word of God, that, that all this, and then it all fits together, all the evil versus the good in the world, that man has fallen, that we are created in God's image, that paradox, all these things, and, and understanding that I'm now holding in my hand the a book that was written through human agents by God, the God of the universe, who's omniscient, omnibenevolent, and, and I'm going, wow, I get goosebumps. So I, then I start studying it, and I, for the last 25 to 30 years I've been studying it, and I want to share, I've wanted to share with other people uh, what I've discovered, not that it's any news to many people, but there are a lot of people, Eric, that were where I was, that didn't give it a chance, that were skeptical, that, that had problems with Christianity, with, the, with an all-loving and, and omnipotent God allowing suffering in the world. I wanted to address all those issues. And so I got all into this, and I wanted to share from a lay perspective, because pastors, I think, some just like if you've never drank before, you can't relate to an alcoholic right. as easily. And, and if you didn't, if you've never been a doubter, you, you can't relate as well in some cases to the doubters. So I started that way. And then I've, then I've gotten so much into the Bible and theology that I wanted to share and make it uh, kind of accessible for laymen. So well, that's, that's, I, I'm sorry if this disjointed answer. No, but, no, no, that, that's fine. I, I thoroughly have enjoyed, I have read every single one of those books and I have given them as gifts to people, largely people who are doubters. And I just, I'm, I, they're tremendous. And I'm looking forward to diving in into the latest as well. I promise I will read it and, and we'll write about it as well. But I'm delighted that you're able to join me here this morning too, David. Eric, you've been a great friend, and I, I really, always appreciated your principled stands, and I love that you sent me that the Bible in the uh, without the verses. I don't know what you call that Bible. That What do you call it? Yeah, you know, I, I honestly, I, I forget the name of it, but it was a Kickstarter project, and I just loved the idea of reading it as it was intended. Yeah, that was so cool, and I, thanks for giving me the time on your on your show today, and we can catch up later. So much we could talk about it. I just I, uh, I love this, but thank you so much. Thank you, David Limbaugh, everyone. You can text the word DATA to 33777, DATA, D-A-T-A, to 33777. I'll give you a link back to uh, the Amazon, to David's book, if you want to order it. The book right now, Out is Guilty by Reason of Insanity, Why the Democrats Must Not Win. And there are links to his related books in there, including the, the for Christmas. It was such a great gift, Jesus is Risen. It was such a good book. You can text SHOW to 33777. You'll, that'll sign you up for the daily email among other things uh but if you just want to link to david limbaugh's new book uh guilty by reason of insanity text the word data to 33777 i've got that keyword set up as we have interviews with candidates and you want to learn out learn you get more data on them you want to get more data on david limbaugh and his book uh you can text the word data to 33777 uh, so you know one of the things that we talked about in our interview was how everything is politicized these days and, and the left uses politics so much and there's a lot of disappointment out there on the amazon jack ryan series uh, which is based on tom clancy and they they kind of made jack ryan more awesome than he is i mean jack ryan is an 
awesome, awesome uh, character in the Tom Clancy books. If you've never read uh, the Hunt for Red October, for example, Clear and Present Danger, they, they were some of the books I grew up with. Uh, really good books about CIA analyst Jack Ryan. And they've turned him on Amazon into a character. And John Shusevsky, uh, what's his name? I I can't remember. Anyway, uh, Krasinski. Uh, Krasinski. And Shusevsky, <laughs> isn't that a general? Anyway, um, and this season, I, now full disclosure, I haven't seen the season, but I got a lot of friends of mine who love... Uh, Jack Ryan and they love Tom Clancy and they are bitterly disappointed because the first season was attacked by people fairly universally on the left as being too conservative oriented. And so they doubled down this season and you've got a, a authoritarian guy in Venezuela and it's a woke social justice warrior who Jack Ryan works with to replace the guy as opposed to in reality, you have a far left socialist, uh, quasi communist in charge of Venezuela, and it's uh, free marketeers who are trying to replace him. Really uh, disappointing to hear that. And I, I will still probably watch it, but it, it, the ability to politicize everything is one of my most frustrating moments. In fact, David and I, we've had these conversations in the past. David actually, you know, a lot of people say, oh, my friend, blah, blah, blah. No, David actually is a friend. And um, we've had this conversation in the past where as politics in this country got as nasty as it's gotten, we've moved more and more towards focusing on faith. And, and frankly, I think I, I see so many people of faith gravitating towards politics these days that it's a refreshing thing to see someone like David Limbaugh, Russia's brother, out there with books like Jesus is Risen and Jesus on Trial and, and Jesus in the Gospels and Jesus in the Old Testament. A great series of books for people who are doubters to see it from the perspectives of someone who doubted and turned to faith, um, more of us need to get out of politics, including on the left. Over a hundred million people have had their personal information stolen in data breaches, social security numbers, contact details, credit scores, so much more, all taken from Capital One customers. There's a good chance you were affected. These kinds of attacks are getting more frequent and more severe, and it's not just Capital One. Equifax, Facebook, eBay, Uber, PlayStation, Yahoo, they've all had uh, leaked password issues, credit card issues, bank number issues. In fact, I had to get a new debit card last week. It just showed up in the house with a note saying one of the online vendors uh, had information compromised. And so you need to use something like ExpressVPN to help ignore this stuff. You can't control how big corporations mishandle your data. You need to understand that. But you can protect yourself. ExpressVPN is an app for your computer and phone. It encrypts and secures your data. If a breach can happen to Capital One, it can happen to you. Now, you won't don't want to go online without ExpressVPN. And if you care about your privacy and safety, you really need ExpressVPN. It connects with just a click. It's lightning fast. It costs less than seven bucks a month. And it's the number one VPN provider by TechRadar, CNET, The Verge, countless others. Use my special link, expressvpn.com slash Eric. Right now, arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show. Protect yourself. Get ExpressVPN. That's expressvpn.com slash Eric for an extra three months. Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program today, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This hour brought to you by First Liberty of Georgia. Doesn't matter whether where you are in the nation, you got a small business, you got a medium-sized business, you want to 
grow up, you want to be a, a bigger business, you want access to capital, well, go to First Liberty Building and Loan. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. The Frost family will be happy to help you, uh, and they can help you get access to loans without the bank bureaucracy. Good people, great company. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. Thanks to them for sponsoring this hour of the program. Last hour, I interviewed David Limbaugh about his new book, uh, Guilty uh, by Reason of Insanity, uh, How the Democrats Must Not Win. Uh, David has been a, boy, he's been a friend of mine for a while, uh, and it was great to talk to him. If you want a copy of his book, I'll make it easy for you. Text the word data, D-A-T-A, to 33777, and I will send you back by text a link to David's book on Amazon so you can buy it. And frankly, if you use that link, it helps support the show as well. Uh, doesn't charge you extra, but Amazon gives those referral link commission things. So uh, text data to 33777. The president was in Atlanta on Friday. Man, traffic was bad on Friday in Atlanta. Y'all. It was horrible. Uh, I happened to get there, uh, get to my station in Atlanta. I had to broadcast from up there because I had to give a speech to the College Republican uh, Georgia Association of College Republicans on Friday night. And I happened to uh, timed it perfectly to be able to get up there before the motorcade went through. But it was horrible. Uh, and I got off, got to the station. I had to take back roads to get into the station. I couldn't go up Peachtree Street in Atlanta because traffic was backed up so bad. Uh, the president was doing a fundraiser for David Perdue at the Whitney Hotel in uh, Buckhead across from Lenox Mall and then went down to the Georgia World Congress Center. They got a small room. Uh, I can tell you now um, what I couldn't tell you on Friday. There was so much embargoed about the event uh, Friday morning when I was on air with you that they didn't know how many people were going to show up. So they got a small room. In fact, the president during his speech apologized for the size of the room. They had to turn people away. There were so many people who showed up. Now, they turned out, uh, they turned away protesters, uh, but they also turned away people who really did want to be there, who really do support the president, who were black. They, they tried to get as many uh, black supporters of the president in the room, um, white supporters standing outside the room. The president wanted a crowd of uh, mostly minority faces, and he got it. Now, I have gotten some extraordinary hate mail uh, and, and voicemails to the show <laughs> for what well, Charlie and Philip were, were both like, oh, you, you shouldn't have said that. So I'm going to readdress what I said on Friday as I get into the president's remarks. Um, uh, you, you two can just just deal with it. <laughs> um I have been in Republican politics for a very long time, and it is inevitable in Republican circles when the Republican Party brings out black supporters, there's borderline eccentricity in the people they like to put on stage. And I have enough friends of mine uh, in the black community who look at it as off-putting uh, that they, of course, have no interest in supporting a Republican in addition to everything else. And you see this time and time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a level of, of eccentrism, and, and when you support someone on the political side where almost every one of your friends – does not. Um, there tends to be some level of eccentricity in there, perhaps, or, or something else uh, that has you doubling down. Now, um, that being said, this president, for all of this president, I got to tell you, he did it right. 
when you looked on stage and the people they brought up on stage, it was not the, the way Republicans in the past have done, where they brought up the, the people who were all decked out in their, their cult of personality garb and, and rah-rah, and you had business people, you had moms and dads, you had people who look like America, you have people who look like members of the black community who don't look like uh, they're crazy. It was It was so well done. And the president made a case. I wish the president on the campaign trail would do more of what he did in Atlanta. Uh, you had actual uh, business people up there, successful members of the community. You had uh, people with, with great families. Um, you had individuals. You had moms and dads. I just This is, the, this is a face of the Republican Party that uh, black voters should be able to relate to. And he made really good arguments for them. And I want to play this clip for you. This is a long clip, and I'm just going to raise and lower the volume uh, and start and stop this as I talk over this, because this is the sort of stuff that I think the president needs to do on the campaign trail in general. But particularly uh, when focusing on black audiences, this, this is a real play for it. You've stayed so long, to be honest. It almost becomes a habit. Right? It's a habit. Like, it's, oh, we vote for a Democrat. This Nobody is him talking about they always vote Democrat. Democrat. Look, if they don't do the job, you switch. You got to switch. And some progress has been made like never before, perhaps, in such a short period of time. But under this administration, all of that has changed, and it's changing even faster now. We're undoing the damage inflicted by decades of corrupt Democrat rule and creating a historic tide of new opportunity and prosperity. We've done more for African-Americans in three years than the broken Washington establishment has done in more than 30 years. We've created 6.7 million new jobs since the election, a number that if I would have said that to the fake news media back there, look at all those cameras. If I would have said that, now if I would have said that during the campaign, I would have been excoriated. They would have gone wild. How dare he make 6.7 million new jobs. Think of that. Since the election, last month, the African-American unemployment rate reached the lowest level ever recorded in the history of our country. I, I just, I, I'll keep playing this, but more of this, please. When the president typically talks to his standard rally crowd, he spends most of his time attacking the Democrats, which everybody loves. He's very funny when he does it. There's no dispute in that. But he's got a record, and he undersells the record to tell people how bad the Democrats are as opposed to telling people how good he is. And with this crowd, he's doing it. He's making the case of here's why I'm good for the black community, including going so far as, you know, you, you may not like me personally, but listen, this is what I'm doing for you. <laughs> How do you lose that argument in a debate, right? The African-American youth unemployment, this was so important to me. You remember how high it was, 60, 70 percent? Has now reached the lowest number ever recorded in the history of our country. Doing really well. The African-American poverty rate has reached an all-time historic low. Lowest it's ever been. For the first time ever, most new hires of prime working age are minorities and women. First time that's ever happened. Wages are rising really fast, up 9% since the election, a number that was unthinkable. And they're rising fastest for low-income workers. Proportionately, 
They're rising the fastest for the low-income worker. Who would have thought this was going to happen? Almost 2.5 million Americans have been lifted out of poverty since my election, including 150,000 African-American children. 150,000. It's a lot. Again, you can't argue with the data. In fact, I saw people on TV this weekend and, and after his speech trying to argue with the data. And the way they were arguing with the data was to argue that the stuff he was saying about Barack Obama was wrong and that his his record is because of Barack Obama. We're three years in and they want to attribute it to Barack Obama. Uh, but this is his record now. And it, it's very interesting. They, they want to quibble and say, well, well, he's lying about Barack Obama because they can't say he's lying about himself. His record speaks for itself. See, when I hear 150,000, a lot of people don't know what that means. You know what it means to me? We fill up Yankee Stadium three times. Three. That's By the way, I people. love that comparison. To bring investment to neglected communities, we've cut a record number of job-destroying regulations, more than any administration in history, even though we've been here for a short while by comparison. We passed massive tax cuts for working families, saving the typical family of four $2,000 a year. And over the last two years, my administration has also provided more than $8 billion in contracts and financing to minority-owned small businesses, which alone has resulted in a minimum of 20,000 brand-new, beautiful jobs. Brand-new, beautiful jobs. So with us today are Kelvin and Janiel King from right here in Atlanta. Kelvin is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, great place, where he was also all-conference football player. Today, Kelvin and his wife, Janiel, own a general contracting business, and they're doing really well. Kelvin and Janiel, please come up. Say a few words, please. Come on up. We can we can stop this one here. But th- see, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You've got a small businessman and his wife. He's an Air Force Academy graduate, and they put them on stage for the world to see. And that's exactly what Republicans need to do. I can't tell you. And again, I mean no disrespect to anyone. But more often than not, you have Republican events, and these people, they're not activists in the Republican Party. They're just trying to vote. And so you go to the Republican Party events, and they put these people on stage who are a little nuts. And here the president says, to heck with that. I'm going to find real people who are in the community. They don't have to be card-carrying members of the Republican Party. They don't have to show up at the events. I'm going to put these people on stage. They're my voters. They are the future of the Republican Party. And he did it. And God bless him for doing it. It, it was normal. And I, I Listen, you may be offended by me saying the word normal, but have you gone to these events? And seeing the typical people who who they like to put up at, at events that highlight non-white voters for the Republicans. It's the people who show up at all the meetings because that's who the local party chairman gets. And those people aren't relatable by and large. These people who are on stage with the president were all relatable. You've got a mom and a dad, Air Force uh, Academy graduate who's a uh, contractor in Atlanta who who is in the building, who has a small business. This is what you've got to do. And it's it's staggering to me that for all of the attacks on Donald Trump's races, you know, I, I've got my evening show and had a number of people, and it, it almost seemed organized. The number of people were calling, oh, he's a racist, he's a racist. Well, what's he done that's racist? Well, you know, he was a slumlord. 
Wait, but while he's president, what's he done that's racist? And the most staggering thing yesterday in, in all of this were the number of people who couldn't put their finger on anything the president himself has done since he's been president that is racist. Now, there are people who call in and say, well, what about Charlottesville? What about Charlottesville? Yeah, I think the president handled that badly. I said so at the time. But it was also a, a quote that was distorted by the press to make it seem like he was praising white nationalists or at least excusing them, good people on both sides line, that was completely taken advantage of uh, and distorted by the media. What, what has the president done that's racist? See, every Republican, it doesn't matter who the Republican is, the Democrats are going to say that person is racist. They, they, they absolutely are. They're going to say that person is racist. It doesn't matter what they do. If you're a black Republican, they accuse you of being an Uncle Tom. They, they've done it with, let's see, they did it in the past with Michael Steele when he was the RNC chairman. Uh, they've done it with Tim Scott in South Carolina. Uh, they've done it with Alan West. They've done it with Mia Love. I mean, it, it is it, the level of attacks from the left towards black Republicans for daring to defy the Democratic Party. Uh, it, it is almost like a, a cult that it has to treat you terribly, like leaving Scientology. You watch the, the what is it, uh, Leah Remini or whatever, um, her TV show on A&E about Scientology and how Scientology Scientologists treat people who leave the cult. Uh, it's very much the way Democrats treat uh, black politicians who are Republicans. That you're just you're not supposed to, and they're livid that the president did this event on Friday. And here's the thing you need to understand: if you only take away one thing, take away this, the president doesn't need ten percent of the black vote. He doesn't need twenty percent of the black vote. He doesn't even need five percent of the black vote. If he gets one or two more percent the president begins to build up a cushion for himself with other voters. He doesn't need a huge number of new voters. He doesn't. He, he, he really does not. And so for Democrats outrage, oh, you're never going to get Democrats to go along. You're never going to get black voters to do this. You're, you're, you're not going to get any support of the, from the black community. He only needs 100,000, 150,000, 200,000, and that's totally doable. He got more black voters than Mitt Romney got. He only needs a just he he needs a few hundred thousand more to really make a cushion for himself, and he could do that. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and it doesn't matter whether you say Barack Obama started it. The reality is that under the Trump administration, the black community is more fully employed than ever before. Young black men are getting out of jail because of criminal justice reform. You've got jobs. You've got families being put back together as, as people get out of jail. You've got all of these indicators that there is new success that there has not been. And it's Donald Trump who's in office right now, not Barack Obama, not George W. Bush, not Bill Clinton. It's Donald Trump. And intuitively, Americans, regardless of race, they tend to give the incumbent president credit for stuff like that. And that's why Democrats are screaming as loud as they are, because they don't want the president. They can't afford for the president to get any credit for this success in the black community. And yet, here he is on stage with a lot of black families saying, thanks, Mr. President, your economy's helping us. And they're right. I really do like his opinion on things. Eric Erickson, the information you need and the truth you demand. He tells it like it is. Live every weekday. The president uh, and his time in Atlanta wooing uh, black voters to his cause... Democrats want to invest in green global projects. I want to invest in black American communities. 
true. So true. And the crowd begins to chant four more years over the president, saying, you know, it's a good line. And that's what drives you. You can tell the good lines because they drive Democrats insane, and that drove Democrats insane on Friday. To revitalize distressed neighborhoods, we created 9,000 opportunity zones. Tim Scott of South Carolina was incredible on that. Including 26 right here in Atlanta. Eight million African-Americans live in opportunity zones, yet every Democrat voted against giving these black citizens the future they deserve. The Republicans got it passed. Not easy. We had no votes from Democrats. And now the Democrats are saying we made a big mistake, but they're never going to admit that publicly, I can guarantee you. But they were totally against it. They were. Opportunity zones are are areas where you get taxable benefit for uh, employing people and building businesses. A lot of small businesses move into those opportunity zones. Uh, Tim Scott has been a big believer. Tim Scott, the uh, senator from South Carolina. You know, that's one of the things I think people miss here. Let let me focus for just a second on Tim Scott. Uh, Good man. Uh, Man, if you you go to YouTube to the resurgence page or to to my page at the research, youtube.com slash EW Erickson. You will find my interview with Tim Scott from the Resurgent Gathering this past August. Man, that guy is incredible. Um, it, it is, it's, it's, he's just a fascinating guy. And people don't realize he got elected as a congressman from Charleston, South Carolina. He represented Fort Sumter. The first black man to represent the area where the Civil War started. And he's a Republican. And he's gotten elected to the United States Senate. He, he's an incredible person. He, he's, a, he's a wonderful person. He grounded in faith. Now, he, he doesn't plan on running again. Um, he, he's, he's term limiting himself. But he's been big on self-empowerment uh that that all you need is is the government to get out of the way and you and jesus can can take care of yourself and he's he's an incredible person and he's pushed the president on opportunity zones and opportunity zones are areas where you can go in and get a taxable benefit by building a business in an area that is typically um a minority community uh, typically an area where a lot of people don't want to drive at night, frankly, if we're being blunt about it. And and he can go in, you can go in and you can start building jobs in that community and you can get taxable benefit from the federal government to reinvest in that community and create jobs in that community. And they work and Democrats are opposed to them. And uh, the, the Democratic solution is always more government, more dependency on government, more money from the government. And here comes uh, Tim Scott with his idea that says, hey, we're not going to give you any money, but we're going to let you keep your money. If you reinvest that money in your local community, and it works, it works. Opportunity zones work. There's no dispute that opportunity zones work, and and Democrats kill them constantly. They try to kill them constantly, and the reason they try to kill them constantly is because they don't want people to see that there is a workable alternative other than federal dependency. And that sort of stuff matters. It, it, it matters in real ways to real people um, across the board. Now, when we come back, we do need to talk about Veterans Day, and we also need to talk about South Georgia and the farmers down there who have been waiting on money.
Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program today, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Um, I, I want to spend some time on Veterans Day. We will after the we will do it in, in the 11 o'clock hour because that's most appropriate. Um, I, but right now we need to talk about South Georgia and I don't care where you are in the country. Uh, we need to talk about this issue. Uh, it is relevant across the nation. The rate of suicides in South Georgia is going up, as is the rate of bankruptcies. And it is overwhelmingly farmers who are having problems. It is overwhelmingly farmers who are depressed. It is overwhelmingly farmers who feel underwater. It is overwhelmingly uh, farmers who they can't get back on their feet. Hurricane Michael was devastating to them. Uh, Hurricane Florence uh, as well had impacts. And they haven't gotten federal recovery money. These people pay taxes. Part of taxes go towards dollars for FEMA, go towards dollars for aid, go towards dollars for recovery. And Congress approved the money. You have the Secretary of Agriculture is the former Republican governor. And even he has been stymied by both a congressional apparatus and a bureaucratic system that has made it very difficult to get money to farmers. On top of that, if you don't live in Georgia, you you don't appreciate that the the southeast of the United States is in water wars territory that's been so familiar out west. And it has everything to do with the growth of the metropolitan Atlanta area. Uh, Metro Atlanta and Charlotte are both major hubs now. Atlanta outpacing Charlotte in growth, and that requires more and more water. The Atlanta area, because the Atlanta area has gotten so big and sprawling, is water-starved, even though it has a vast array of uh, lakes. Uh, Georgia has no major natural lakes. Every every lake in Georgia is man-made, which I did not realize. Uh, now, I'm not talking small ponds and things like that, but the big lakes, they're all man-made, uh, mostly Georgia Power. Some of them, the, the Army Corps of Engineers, designed for power, designed for water. Well, the, the water from Lake Lanier flows south uh, through the Chattahoochee. The Chattahoochee goes down to um, south, goes down to Florida. It meets with the Flint River. It uh, pours out the the Apalachicola and it feeds the oysters in the the bay there in Florida. Alabama relies on the water. Florida relies on the water. Georgia relies on the water. Georgia has a massive amount of farms that rely on the water and there's been a drought and the droughts have been recurring and they've relied on wells and the wells get very expensive to dig deeper and then they had Hurricane Michael come through uh, wiped out a lot of orchard crops uh, peaches, pecans uh, devastated in South Georgia cornfields and and the peanuts have dried out it's more and more expensive to irrigate and the federal government was promising relief and the relief never came the relief never came because it took Congress a long time to to pass the relief. I you know I've got some friends in Congress, full disclosure, and I supported their efforts. Uh, my buddy Chip Roy uh, from Austin, Texas, a good friend of mine. He's been on the show, a uh, long time friend of mine. He uh, blocked 
the unanimous consent to get the the money passed a while back, and he did so because uh, he didn't think Congress was essentially Congress was passing a big spending package and running out the door, and no one had seen it. And he wanted to have have a chance to see it. And so he objected to forced discussions. He was excoriated by a lot of friends of mine in Georgia for doing so. But I think he was right. It's not that he opposed the money. He ultimately supported the package. But he thought we needed to see what all was in the package as opposed to rushing it out the door sight unseen. And he was right to do so now that we know that some of the stuff that was in there. And by the way, a, a lot of the stuff in there caused the money to be held up. But it was passed sight unseen. Many of the farmers in South Georgia, North Florida, and, and Lower Alabama have not gotten the money that the federal government said they would give them. And many of them have had to file bankruptcy waiting for the money. It is a situation that does not get national coverage. It reminds me very much, do you recall, oh, it was Barack Obama was president, it may have been five or six years ago. There was massive flooding in the Nashville area. The Cumberland River spilled out of its banks. Downtown Nashville, uh, uh, the, the Gaylord, the Opperland Hotel was underwater. I mean, it just devastating flooding. And it got virtually no media attention. And a lot of there were a lot of Republicans because it got no media attention. I mean, we let, let's just be honest about it. Uh, if if you get three snowflakes in New York City, it becomes a major media event. It becomes the lead story. The nightly news for ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. They all cover uh, the three snowflakes in New York City. And I'm not talking about college kids. I'm talking about actual snowflakes. Um, if if it snows in New York City, it is a national story, and it's a national story because that's where the media lives. If there's if there's a heat wave or a blizzard in Washington D.C., it gets an overabundance of coverage by the national press because that's where the national press lives. You have massive flooding in the the Nashville metropolitan area. Roads wash away, bridges bridges wash away, homes wash away. Uh, major tourist attractions are underwater, and nothing. The media doesn't pay attention to it. And the media didn't pay attention to it in large part because the media doesn't live there. They have no vested interest there. It, it, it's not their viewers who live there. And so people don't know what happened. Again, the bias of the media more often than not is not what they cover, but what they don't cover. And here, two hours south of me, on the Florida line in southwest Georgia, in the Bainbridge area, the Darty County area, the Thomas County area, Thomasville, even Americus. There's just still devastation. You go down there, and there are still blue tarps on roofs. The hurricane was more than a year ago, and there are still people who can't get their roofs fixed because the federal disaster relief money hadn't flowed to them yet. There are fields. In fact, I drove down there. Uh, my wife has a Harley. My wife loves to ride her Harley. It's her therapy, her, her her well check, I guess you could say. From After she got diagnosed with cancer, she pulled the, the I've got cancer card. She made me buy her a motorcycle. And we'll drive down there occasionally. I'll take the kids in my car. We'll go down to Montezuma. Uh, there's a f- great farmer's market, Brown's Farmer's Market in Montezuma. It, it is, I mean, the place is incredible. The The amount of produce they have at this farmer's market is just amazing. And you go past the pecan orchards, you go past the peach orchards, you go past the pecan, uh, the, the peanut fields, you go past the cotton fields, there are tomato fields and corn fields. We drove past, there was one farm, 
and every other pecan tree was overturned, ripped out of the ground and overturned. It takes years to plant a new tree to get the crop going. They hadn't even cleared out the pecan trees. Now, this would have been... This would have been in August, so not quite a year from Hurricane Michael, but close to it. It was devastating. And those people haven't gotten funding. They haven't gotten money. They haven't gotten what was promised them. And the farmers are going bankrupt. Some of them are committing suicide, and you don't hear about it on the national news. Thankfully, the money is beginning to flow. Slowly but surely, Sonny Purdue is doing what he can. What's so interesting here is that it hasn't flowed yet and it hasn't flowed because of computer systems and Sonny Purdue and the Trump administration are getting a lot of fault for this but it was prior administrations they started looking during the Bush administration at upgrading computers and information within the Department of Agriculture they continued through the Obama administration and made final approvals it's being implemented now but it's causing all sorts of problems all sorts of problems um, there because the computer systems uh, had problems the consultants weren't aware of. And you had FEMA go down there. In fact, I just got a, a buddy of mine texted that uh, he was down there after the hurricane. They were promising all sorts of quick relief from FEMA. And it, it, the relief for the cities and the counties came. The relief for the power companies came. But the relief for the farmers never came. And most of them, there's still $800 million outstanding. $800 million outstanding. And this is another issue with the inefficiencies and incompetence of the federal government. It is not Sonny Perdue's fault. He's getting the blame for it because he's in charge of the Department of Agriculture. But this is a systemic problem within the Department of Agriculture that's long-term through multiple administrations. And he's now having to deal with the fallout of decisions made by his predecessors. But it's still a problem, and it's something that uh, Georgia, to its credit, Brian Kemp, Nathan Deal, and now Brian Kemp have stepped forward, and they've offered state money, essentially giving state money, and in exchange, they'll take the federal money when it comes in, but they've only got so much uh, they can play with to do that. There's only so much they can do, and this is something you need to be mindful of. Keep these people in your prayers. Uh, thankfully, Sonny Perdue, because he was the former governor of the state, uh, he is mindful of these things, and he's doing what he can to get the money, but it, it's a hard process. You would think that the head of the department would be able to get the checks written, and he can't uh, because of computer snafus de designed by bureaucrats and overseen by outside consultants. It's amazing how powerless a secretary of, of agriculture can be um, given those things. Now, there's a tie-in here. The reliance on the federal government. Now, listen, it, you can only go so far with this because we're talking about natural disaster and FEMA and the federal government makes promises. Your taxpayers go to a pool of money that can then be given to people in natural disaster. And we as a people should want to help other people in natural disaster. I'm not so libertarian that I think the government should not help our fellow citizens when it comes to natural disaster. But I do. I am uh, conservative enough to think that we have done a good job in this uh, country of undermining local groups who could help. We're, we've undermined local groups who could play a role. And it's something we as a people need to consider. And frankly, I think Republicans, because Democrats would never do it, Republicans need to work very hard to 
oversee, overcome, um, overcorrect. I, I mean, there would have to be an overcorrection to a degree just to get to the correction. Uh, people's faith in local institutions, churches need to step up. And I, this is, by the way, this is not to be dismissive of local efforts down in South Georgia, North Florida, and, and Lower Alabama. Uh, a lot of churches have taken care of a lot of people in those areas. There are lots of communities where the churches have been paying people's mortgages. There are lots of communities where the churches have been buying people new tractors. There are lots of communities down there where the churches have showed up to help with the harvest when there was no one around or no equipment around to do it. Farmers helping farmers, churches helping people, local communities helping people. It really is a testament to the the spirit of the of Americans in small town America. I, I saw there was a, a guy on social media the other day who was savaging people who live in rural areas that uh, health care should be more expensive, food should be more expensive, everything should be more expensive, and you should not have internet access in rural areas because you should have to live in cities. Uh, it, it's more environmental friendly if we all live in cities where there's public transportation and blah, 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 blah. Now, this was a, a person with maybe 2,000 followers on Twitter. He's a nobody. He ultimately deleted the tweet because he was getting savaged. Uh, but it, it was amazing to watch a, a number of uh, progressive activists affirming what he said, that yes, this this is so. But I, I actually, you know, there's a theology, and I don't want to go down this road too far, but let me just say that there is a theology of cities in Scripture, and it's not very good. It is Cain who went out and made the first cities prior to the flood. Uh, bad things happen to, to Christians in cities. The, the wealthier cities they get, the, the more they turn their back on God. Um, you, you see this even today. There is a theology of cities in Scripture, and it's not very favorable to cities. Uh, it, it is the people who work the soil with their hands, the farmers who, who are blessed, who uh, live out in rural areas and uh, take care of themselves and have a level of sufficiency. And, and one of the things that you can connect in this in, in Scripture theologically is these people have to rely on each other and on God. They can't rely on a government, a king, a, a bureaucracy to take care of them because they're out in rural parts of, of, of the countryside. And we see that here in this country. When you live in rural areas, is, you tend to have more close-knit communities. And, you know, I, I've got a book, um, you know, I, I got a, it's right here on my desk, uh, Alienated America by Tim Carney. Uh, and it's why some places thrive while others collapse. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump proclaimed the American dream is dead, a message that resonated across the country. Washington Examiner editor Tim Carney traveled middle America, poured over county-level maps and data, and sorted through sociological studies and had a startling revelation. Donald Trump is right. But the death of the American dream is a social phenomenon, not an economic one. In some parts of the United States, life seems to be getting worse because citizens are facing their problems alone. These communities have seen declines in marriage, voting, church attendance, and volunteer work. Even when money comes back to town, happiness does not return and people there do not re-engage. The educated and wealthy elites, on the other hand, tend to live in places where institutions are strong or have enough money to insulate themselves. It's a fascinating book. I'm excited to get and to read. Um, Selena Zito at the Washington Examiner has done a lot of this stuff as well. Um, but there really is just interesting data also out there in the communities that have faced disaster where the local communities step up and to some degree it revitalizes those local communities and local institutions. One of the biggest interesting data points I've seen out there, and I believe it was Barna, don't hold me to that, but in small town rural America where churches are a vital institution, the well-being of the community, the thoughtfulness of the community um, accelerates. Uh, the engagement with the community accelerates. 
And we've seen this in parts of North Florida and South Georgia, by the way, as, as uh, the federal government money hasn't come and local churches have stepped up. You see a, a recommitment to civic life. It's almost like the, the church and the civic community, despite separation of church and state, they're almost um, in a symbiotic relationship. You engage in your church community more. Your church community engages in the community. It creates a feedback loop. That feedback loop also benefits your, your mental condition. And we see this down in South Georgia. The people who are more regularly engaged in their churches, the farmers who have relied on their churches and have in turn given back to their churches tend to have a better social well-being and better, better mental frame of mind. It's the people who have isolated themselves and disconnected themselves who live in communities where churches and local groups haven't stepped up who are having the problem. That is way more than I wanted to talk about South Georgia, but the whole phenomenon echoes into something we see nationally with the collapse of rural America. Uh, Rural America collapses when the local institutions collapse, and those local institutions are chiefly led by churches. And when churches stop engaging in their communities, you have all sorts of fallout uh, at the societal level. And Democrats are so hostile to churches these days and so hostile to church engagement in community. It makes it easy to see how Democrats in charge would worsen the problems of rural America, particularly as well when we have an elite in this country who are openly hostile to rural America who think we all should live in cities. Politics, news, religion. Eric Erickson talks about all the things you're not supposed to talk about every weekday. And some cooking, too. Just got an email from somebody who was listening to last week's show, had been out of town, listening to a podcast, and I mentioned coffee, and uh, he's sending me uh, links to local coffee um, local coffee roasters here in the state. Got a couple. There's one up in, in North Georgia that I like, I, and I have fallen in love with radio roasters. Uh, they're over in Decatur. Uh, they're if you have you ever if you watch the Alton Brown show, Alton Brown has occasionally visited, visited the DeKalb Farmers Market, and just across the street from DeKalb Farmers Market, there's this place called Radio Roasters, and they'll ship anywhere in Georgia. They'll ship anywhere in the nation, really, and and is so good. But my wife and I. We became coffee snobs after we got married. Someone gave us a coffee maker that has a grinder built into it. Now, it's not a burr grinder. And I know if you're a real coffee snob, it's got to be a burr grinder. This one is not, but it's still great. And uh, so we have a coffee pot that you have a grinder built into it, and it grinds the beans before it makes the coffee, and it's terrific. We have had this coffee maker. We've actually, we're on our, I guess, our third one in 20 years. We've been buying the same model coffee maker. It's from Cuisinart. And there's this hipster place in California. Listen, it's got to be a hipster place. It is named Mustache Coffee. And it is in California, and these people roast beans on Tuesday, put them in the mail on Wednesday. They get here on Thursday. They're that fresh, uh, and we use them throughout the next week. And it, it's I have become a, a coffee snob in that regard. I hate Starbucks coffee. So anyway, this, uh, one of you from up in Clarksville is, is texting me right now, David in Clarksville. I know you're listening right now. Uh, and um, giving me recommendations for for other coffee places. Some of these I'm going to have to check out, but uh, we got a subscription to this mustache coffee place. I'll I'll have to get a link for for you guys. Um, And if I give it to you, then they'll give me, like, free beans. (laughs) But... It's good stuff. Uh, I, I've got to be such a snob. I, I don't understand the allure of Starbucks. And I realize people go to Starbucks for uh, the, the the espresso drinks, the lattes, and the caramel macchiato. And I just want coffee. 
I don't want all that other stuff. I, and I don't want iced coffee. Coffee is meant to be drunk hot. Uh, I, I grew up in South Louisiana um, where you would make really strong coffee and you'd put a little bit in, in your milk as you were a kid and get used to drinking coffee. And I, I have a weakness for Cafe Olay that is the, the one fancy coffee drink I'll get at a coffee shop. But it's not that fancy. It's just half and half coffee and, and milk. And you'd be amazed how hipsters ruin it by putting foam on top. There's not supposed to be foam in Cafe Olay. Go to go to um, uh, Cafe Dumont and you will see that there's not supposed to be a foam on top. But nonetheless, uh, that they do that. I am the, the miracle of the modern age is these craft services that have sprung up that people can take advantage of, uh, most particularly uh, things like coffee beans, or you can get coffee from California that is roasted on Tuesday and in your to your house by a Thursday, or Amazon.com, where yesterday uh, I made a big pot of soup and realized I didn't have any containers. So I got on Amazon, uh, found some containers. They'll be here this afternoon so I can freeze the soup and live on it through the wintertime. I made some taco soup. I'll have to send out that recipe again. By the way, if you want my recipe list, text RECIPE to 33777. When we come back, uh, the media is melting down over Mike Bloomberg. But before we get to that Veterans Day, we need to talk about it. Yo, I got a sponsor this week. I am so excited about it. I've actually been waiting for this news um, because I'm a subscriber uh, to their English uh, publication. Uh, the Spectator is coming to the United States. The Spectator is uh, the longest running magazine in the English language. It's been published in the UK since... Gosh, it's like 190, 191 years, and now it's getting ready. It's going to do an American edition. It's launching, uh, well, it started, I guess, last month in print. It's going to be delivered monthly. The U.S. edition is going to be just like the U.K. magazine. If you know anything about The Spectator, it's brilliant. It's fearless, uh, very honest, and very conservative. Doesn't mince words when it comes to conservatism, and it's just it's tremendous. I highly, highly encourage you uh, to get it. It's going to have Christopher Buckley, P.J. Rourke, uh, Christopher Caldwell, uh, Toby Young, uh, Roger Scruton, so many more. You'll get British humor as well, which I grew up with overseas. I am a huge fan of The Spectator. Literally, I'm not just saying this because they're a sponsor. I didn't even know they were going to sponsor. I'm so excited. I love The Spectator. Uh, you can check it out. Go to spectator.us slash subscribe. That's spectator.us slash subscribe. And then use offer code Eric, E-R-I-C-K. You'll get a free trial. Do it. You will love the spectator. It is so great to finally have their voice here in the United States. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show on this Veterans Day. And I have put off until now because it was 1918, uh, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, where the guns of August fell silent. And we are now 101 years removed from World War One. We call it Veterans Day in this country. It is uh, Remembrance Day the world over. The, the British Empire uh, wears poppies. All the British Empire, uh, the, the, the former territories of the British Empire, whether Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain, even uh, Jamaica, the, the Bahamas, Bermuda, they are wearing poppies in large part uh, because of a poem called In Flanders Field uh, chronicling the effects of World War I. 
In Flanders Field, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders Field. We in this country have Memorial Day, the last Monday of May. The Civil War for us is akin to World War I for Europe. More Americans died in the Civil War than all other American wars combined until the last few years. Uh, a death in Afghanistan put all of them combined across the Civil War. The Civil War in this country had a monumental effect on our heritage, on our culture, on our language. I mean, for example, uh, prior to the Civil War, the United States, we referred to it as these United States. If you were alive before the Civil War, you most often referred to our country as these United States. Even though it was the United States, people referred to it as these United States. Uh, each person viewed their state as their country. It's why some people, uh, uh, Lee in particular, decided to fight for Virginia. It was his country. World War I for Europe is very much the same way. We came in at the end of World War I. The war probably would have gone on but for our entry. Frankly, we, we did help turn the tide, but it was really a European affair. Whole villages in England disappeared. I mean, all the men died. They all went off to war and they all died. Uh, everyone expected it would just be a, a couple of weeks affair. The kings and emperors would sort things out and that would be the end of it. And it went on and on and on and it caused political upheaval. The loss of the Romanovs in in, uh, in Russia becoming the Soviet Union, the rise of the communists, the, the downfall of the, the Kaiser in Germany, and uh, the, the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and, and the rise of Hitler, all of these things. Uh, world War I reshaped the, the, the map, the war, the, the world. Warfare became brutal and devastating and nasty chemical attacks. Uh, the machine guns, all, all of the major implements that were developed in the Civil War refined then in Europe on the battlefield of World War I. It was a genuinely devastating affair. And we, because of the destruction and death in the Civil War, had Memorial Day. In other countries, they, they had not faced anything like what we'd faced. Now, certainly for, for centuries or for, for, for millennia, there had been terrible wars of serfs and uh, on behalf of lords and, and kings. But World War I, by then the world growing increasingly democratic, uh, it, it swept across classes in uh, Europe. Uh, Europe was a class-based society regardless of where you lived. Even in France, though France proclaimed egalitarianism, even in France there were classes of people, and World War I devastated them all. From the duke to the blue-collar worker in the factory, they all died. Hundreds of thousands of people dead. And so it became Remembrance Day. And a few decades later, World War II broke out. 
And our entry there, again, it was mostly a European affair. We, we gave assistance to Britain, but we got in when Pearl Harbor happened. And now all of us, the world over, we stand together for D-Day in July and for Remembrance Day, for Veterans Day in November. I, I a couple of months ago, sat down with Grover Sassman. Uh, some of you know his name. Uh, he is the oldest still-operating Harley dealer in North America. And he's in Macon, Georgia. He sold my wife her Harley. Uh, his family's got to be friends with ours. I, I want to play some of this interview for you. Uh, Grover Sassman, uh, he's a Marine. And he was a mechanic. Uh, he was actually a, a masterful mechanic. And one of the things that, that Grover Sassman did is he took, uh, so we had an event for him for his 98th birthday in Macon, and they flew in a Corsair, a World War II Corsair. Uh, he was a mechanic for Corsairs, and Corsairs were, they used the Mustang in uh, the European theater. They needed something more maneuverable in the uh, Pacific theater to combat the, the Japanese Zeros, and Grover Sassman was a mechanic on the Corsairs, and I talked to him a little bit about that. I want to play some of this audio for you. We were in an aircraft hangar, uh, so keep that in mind. Now, I understand that you pieced together the front and the back of a Corsair and made it turn two planes into one to get them back in the air. Right. Tell me about that. Well, there was one that had been on loan to New Zealand, and I, I don't remember now which one was which, but one of them was messed up on the front, and the other one messed up on the tail. And I said to my CEO, I said, that ought to be one airplane. He said, oh, that'd have to go back to the States. Well, I knew that he would tell me a, a fib because when they would dump one over the side of a ship, when they just have a bent prop, I knew they wasn't about to ship it back. So I, I said to him, I said, if you get me some lights, I'll work on my own time at night. And then after I got it finished and he done a flight test on it, he said, Sergeant, why didn't you tell me you could do work like that? I said, I did, you wouldn't miss <laughs> So tell me about going into the Philippines uh, with MacArthur. Oh, well, we was all ready to leave Bougainville and go to Australia for 10-day ten, ten R&I. MacArthur went taxiing up to my shop that I had over there in a R4D. Right off the bat, he wanted to know where the latrine was. So I told him, and then he says, call me a recon. So I called him a car from headquarters. And we went in that R4D. It was as plush as anything you would ever see. I mean, it had beautiful upholstery, everything was just to the nth degree. 
Well, he killed our trip to Australia. So we got out a sign and put it up with the help of God and a few Marines, MacArthur returned to the Philippines. <laughs> and we had to put a, a sentry on it because they would tear down our sign. So we put a sentry on it where they, if they'd go to mess with it, they'd have to deal with a Marine. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, we went in Lingan Gulf nine days before they actually invaded. We slept on banana peels. We slept any way we could, and it, you could tell a difference in the Jap engine by the way the engine sound. Instead of having a regular buzz like that, they had mmm. Mm, mm. So you could all, we called them wash machine Charlie's. And we could tell when they were coming over. And one night we had an earthquake, a shelling, and an eruption of the volcano, all at the same time. Uh, we, we had to bury our bunks deep enough so that if they were to strafe the surface, they would miss our mosquito netting. And uh, of course, after we got to the Philippines, they were all lining the roads Victory Joe, victory Joe, like that. They really were happy to see us. And of course I stayed there and then I went to uh, Zamboanga, Mindanao, and then I went to Malabang. That was in Mindanao. They had, they had some severe savages had done silver mining and we were told not to associate with them because they'd cut your throat is to look at you. And when they'd sound a, an alarm for a, an air raid, they had volcanic soil, soil and we'd go to go in our foxhole and you'd have to face a cobra. Uh, you know, so you, it was either you or the cobra. So you had your 45 and you had to be a good shot. <laughs> but. So I assume you were a good shot. Well, yeah, I did. I made a good shot in Marine Corps. <laughs> that's Grover Sassman. He is 98 years old. He is the oldest, uh, still operating owner of a Harley dealer anywhere in North America, anywhere in the world. Uh, and it happens to be in, in Macon, Georgia, uh, great family. And he, a veteran from world war two. And, and just, uh, I wanted you to hear his stories from the war. We, we live in a world where we got a lot of, a lot of young men who go off to war 
to Afghanistan and Iraq. But I think most Americans don't understand the sacrifice still, um, and particularly from World War II. The sacrifices made by by young men who were uprooted from families for years, having to go abroad to face the Nazis to the east and the Japanese to the west, going into the Philippines. And, and, and as he said, I mean, you would get into your foxhole and there would be cobra. You'd have in one night a volcano, an earthquake and a, and a flyover bombing by the Japanese uh, just just fascinating things that our veterans have had to deal with to keep this country and, and the Western alliances safe. And to some degree, it's, it's kind of bittersweet these days because you can almost feel the unraveling of the, the post-World War II structure. Uh, a lot of people think it's not needed. Even the president thinks parts of it aren't needed. A lot of people on the left with no sense of history don't appreciate why it's in place. A lot of people on the right these days think it's a waste of time and, and treasure. And yet that alliance has done so much to keep us safe after World War II and, and to keep the world largely stable. And I don't know how much longer it'll last. Uh, but here this this Veterans Day, it's worth listening to the story of, of a veteran who went in with MacArthur to the Philippines and, and lived in holes and fought cobras, killed cobras, uh, to advance uh, the American military all the way up to Japan to beat the Japanese in World War II, even after the Nazis surrendered, World War II went on in the Pacific Theater. And we stop today and remember those veterans here in the United States and thank them for their service all the way up to these recent wars. And we stop and we remind ourselves the price Europe itself has paid on our Veterans Day being their Remembrance Day as they remember the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men from Europe who fought each other in a war they thought would last weeks, that lasted years, and then caused the greatest war the world has ever known. I want to go back to some audio I played earlier from the president at his rally for Black Voices for Trump, uh, and it's relevant to a Bernie Sanders rally. First, let's listen to the president and the crowd. Democrats want to invest in green global projects. I want to invest in black American communities. And the crowd went on to start chanting USA, USA. Naomi Klein showed up at a, a Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rally. Listen to this. The fire clears away the debris and the ash feeds the soil. And it prevents those wildfires that are so destructive. And that is the kind of fire that we need to locate in ourselves so that we can truly be in this moment. We need to clear away whatever debris is standing in our way, is keeping us from being in this fight with everything that we have because everything is on the line. And we need to clear away the debris on the outside. We need to clear away the debris of the climate change deniers who are still out there soaked in fossil fuel money, spreading doubt and misinformation in this moment when we cannot afford that. We need to we need a movement that burns bright and hot enough to clear away that debris. Yeah, oh, and she went on, listen to this part. Warm the planet, and that fuels the droughts and the superstorms and the floods, the fires that force millions to flee their arid lands, the fires that intensify armed conflicts which also fuels migration, displacement, which is then used as fuel 
for those fires of hate. We are in a cycle now. Do you see this? It fuels the arguments for further militarizing borders and incarcerating migrants and tearing children from their parents. And it's even more frightening than that because we are now seeing fascist and neo-fascist political figures in Europe, but it's seeping into North America as well, drop the charade of climate change denial and instead cast the global ecological crisis as some kind of divine corrective, a way of cleansing the world of lesser humans. We cannot win this fight without battling white supremacy. The battles have... <laughs> We've got ecological Nazis and white supremacists and, and it's, you know, I listen to this and I hear a religion. When I, I'm a Christian and it is my worldview and, and I see the hand of God in things. And it was so fascinating listening to Naomi Klein. And again, she was speaking at a Sanders rally with, with Olympia Ocasio-Cortez. And it, it, what's so fascinating to me is how she sees divinity and things that are happening as well. But, but her divine is, is in a way it's, it's mother earth. Um, the, the refugee crisis, the, the, the mass migration North to the American border is because of climate change. And if we stopped climate, we would stop this and we wouldn't have to be, be detaining and arresting children it, it, on and on. Everything ties into climate change. And, the deniers need to be silenced. They need to be punished. Uh, we need to, to put them out of society. This is such dangerous rhetoric. And, and you know, this this goes back to the, the AOC concentration camp rhetoric. By the way, whatever happened to the concentration camps? I assume Trump is still running them, but they don't care about them anymore. Uh, when you believe that your opposition will fundamentally destroy the planet, then you can kind of understand why people are going to get violent. Because if you really believe in, and by the way, this goes for the right as well. If you believe the left is going to destroy the country, destroy your way of life, is going to impose a totalitarian regime on you, is going to come to your homes and confiscate your guns. I mean, we heard Beto O'Rourke say it. Going to shut down your church schools and, and churches themselves. People are going to rise up and take action. And neither side has any incentive to calm the rhetoric these days and to actually look dispassionately at what's happening. Both sides view the other side as not an opponent but the enemy. And here's this woman on stage at a presidential candidate's rally essentially saying we need to silence anyone who disagrees with their agenda, that, that Mother Earth herself is punishing the planet, uh, causing these political problems because people are denying it exists. That's crazy. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. Text the word DATA to 33777 if you want to link to David Limbaugh's new book that's come out, uh, Guilty by Reason of Insanity. Great book. Uh, And there's also, you'll be able to follow that link and see all of his great books on on the gospel and, and faith as well. He's such a prolific writer. 
uh, and also practices law, too. Uh, he's, he's just he's a good guy. I interviewed him in the first hour. You can get the podcast of the show. Just search for the Eric Erickson Show podcast uh, or text show to 33777, and you can hear my interview with David as well. Um, uh, real quick, I got an email from someone saying, that <laughs> Andrew, you'll like this. <laughs> um, who is this? Uh, Carrie uh, emails, I'm hearing voice cubes in your cues in your YouTube live stream. In the segment ending 11:50, I finally made out uh, 2015-10 by a deeper voice than yours. Uh, so, th- th- listen, I, I I am doing this whole thing myself. Uh, the the I handle the live stream. I, I cover the satellite calls, and the only way I can figure out how to. Uh, get everything through so that you guys can hear callers and interviews is I got a route through uh, the box that feeds me the signal from the studio and in, into my home studio. And so uh, my board operator, usually Jim Andrews filling in for him today, uh, you know, a lot of times radio show hosts, if you listen to most radio shows, what you'll hear is they'll play a musical bed, and, and that's your cue that you've got 30 seconds or a minute left, and there's no countdown. Uh, when I fill in for Rush, uh, when I used to fill in for Rush, uh, I always thought it sounded more professional that you, he plays that short little tone at the end of a, a, at a hard out, and they would give him a countdown. And, and the thing is, it forces you to not be lazy. A lot of radio show hosts, and, and I, don't, I don't want to use names or disparaging one, but a lot of radio show hosts will play that musical out, and they know they can, they got about a minute or 30 seconds, they can finish up a thought, and then just let the music ride out. And I, I want the tone because the tone forces me to continue to engage with you instead of being able to mentally check out and say, oh, thank God the music started. I can shut up now. No, no, no. I want you to say, thank God the tone's there. He shut up. <laughs> but the the only way for me to get this so that you guys can hear everything on a live stream like YouTube or Facebook is, is to route it uh, through what comes into my ear. And what comes into my ear, I have a little earpiece I wear like on TV. Uh, I don't wear headphones because having big cans on my ear it, in front of a camera just looks silly to me. So I have my, my TV IFB piece that I put in my ear. And uh, so you hear stuff that comes down the line. So if Andrew or or Jim talks to me, you're able to hear it on the live stream. Um, so that, that's why that is, but I, I appreciate people who point that out because, because I've never really explained why that is. And I get this question all the time. Have y'all heard, uh, so Greta Thunberg every once in a while shows up in the news. She's the autistic kid from Sweden who wants everyone to stop flying and, uh, took a prince's yacht to the United States they're, they're painting a big billboard of her in San Francisco. Of course they are. There's a giant billboard. I looked at it at first and thought it was a painting of Vladimir Putin, but it's apparently her. She has the very stern Vladimir Putin uh, face on. It is your typical socialist art project where the, the person in the in the picture is, is glaring at you instead of smiling. The Babylon Bee has a story up. A new mural in downtown San Francisco of Swedish teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg has a surprise for passersby. Her eyes are equipped with high-powered lasers designed to seek and destroy carbon-emitting SUVs on the streets below. We want the mural to really make a positive impact in the flight against climate change, a spokesperson told sources. Greta's pouty glare is certain to generate guilt and shame in many motorists, but that didn't seem like enough. By adding the lasers, we are we can begin taking out the worst offenders in their Hummers and Land Rovers. When the lasers were first activated, they immediately targeted the carbon-emitting hydraulic cranes and aerosol paint sprayers used to create the mural. The glitch has since been fixed. Sources confirm the lasers will be suspended when Al Gore and other climate activist celebrities visit San Francisco and drive through town with their feet of a uh, fleet of Suburbans and Escalades. 
I love the Babylon Bee, by the way. It, it is it is a wonderful website. It is way funnier these days than the, the Onion. The thing about the election of Donald Trump, really it was the election of, of Obama that brought it on, but now really Trump. Uh, the left has lost its sense of humor. No one on the left is funny anymore. Uh, they, they just they, they fundamentally are not funny. Uh, they've lost their sense of humor. One of the things David Limbaugh was talking about in his interview the first hour is that they, these late night shows, they're all in on la resistance and, and they've just lost their sense of humor. They can't be funny anymore. It is really striking to see. Well, they've lost their sense of humor about Mike Bloomberg as well. I, I, I want to play for you. So again, some of the reaction from the left about Bloomberg. Uh, I played this clip the the beginning of the show this morning. I need to play it again. This is this is the original media reaction on Friday. Actually, I guess it was Thursday night into Friday morning when word began leaking out about Mike Bloomberg running. The real billionaire, the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, preparing a potential run. He is the real deal of what Trump purports to be. He's probably the most, certainly the most successful businessman in New York, one of the five or ten most successful businessmen in the country. Truth is, if he stands on a stage with Donald Trump, I think he matches up very well. He's actually a businessman. He's actually a billionaire. He's actually a philanthropist. He's all the things that Trump pretends to be. In the smoke-filled room, you'd say, on paper, Bloomberg has the right balance of what you want to win a broad election. The bumper sticker for Michael Bloomberg is Donald Trump, but richer, more successful, and less offensive. How much money? Let's put it up. Let's put it up. Can't get enough of this graphic. So we're talking about the war between the billionaires, and look at the net worth. Uh, clearly, uh, Bloomberg is a lot richer than President Trump is uh, those and billions. Me. Billions. As we know, Donald Trump has prided himself on uh, what he views as his business acumen, his business success, being a wealthy man. Well, that's something that Michael Bloomberg clearly brings to the table. It really could pose a threat to Trump, who is not likely to be happy that there's another billionaire, a real billionaire, on the scene. Look, I think that for the president on a bunch of different levels, that's scary in a general election. The chances of a brokered convention have increased if Bloomberg is serious about this. Trump is the ultimate charlatan, is the ultimate fake. He can peel that emperor's clothes off of Trump just about better than anybody. I think this is huge, huge news, and I do think he's an electable candidate. That was when Bloomberg first announced. Now, um, listen to uh, uh, Yamish Alcindor on Meet the Press with Chuck Interestingly, Todd. both Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg didn't have harsh uh, reactions to that the way other candidates did. Especially for progressive candidates, they see Michael Bloomberg's money as the number one Achilles heel that he has. Um, the problem is, of course, that all of that money means that he can also, in some ways, buy ads and really start to become competitive. Now, he is obviously very, very late, but I had someone say to me, look, it's not like Michelle Obama got into the race. It's not as if this is going to shift completely everything that's happening. But remember that President Trump, even though he was at that time a front runner, he skipped the debate and continued to still have momentum. And that's the message that I think people around Bloomberg are saying that even though he's late, he could probably still have a chance. Yeah, so Bloomberg doesn't want to run in Iowa and New Hampshire. He wants to wait for Super Tuesday. Good luck with that. So he'd miss Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Uh, get his name on the ballot elsewhere. I guess he thinks he can build himself up. He thinks it's going to be an entire cluster the whole way to Super Tuesday. We'll see. Uh, Dan Kildee on Bloomberg. Well, it's certainly going to, if he does it, it, it will certainly add a new twist to what has already been 
uh, a really interesting primary season. We haven't even gotten into the primaries and caucuses yet, but we have we have a lot of candidates. I'm not sure more candidates is the answer, but you know, I I think we ought to have a process as as wide open as possible. And if he joins the fray, I, I welcome him to it. Yeah. So Dan Kildee is in the U.S. House. He's in Michigan. And a, a lot of these Democrats have been saying we need someone else. They're very desperate for someone else. They're not happy with the field. They're not happy with Biden. In fact, they're flailing around. Uh, and Bloomberg, largely, they're interpreting it as he's entering because Biden is not that strong and they're scared of Elizabeth Warren. And now Bloomberg does get in. And they're like, whoa, we may need new candidates, but not this guy. He's a billionaire. Here's David Ignatius on Meet the Press. Being, I don't know why Bloomberg's getting in here. Look, David, I want to put up these Iowa numbers from March. This was right before Bloomberg. And it looked like Bloomberg was thinking about getting in, and he decided not to get in. Um, he had a net negative rating, Favon rating, among Democratic caucus goers in Iowa. There are parts of the Democratic Party that support Elizabeth Warren that do not like Bloomberg. No, no question that Bloomberg has, has problems with a lot of resistance. But I think the fact that he's come in... Mm-hmm illustrates the uneasiness uh, in, in, in the Democratic Party among prospective voters about the field right now. And I don't think this is the, this is the last late-entering centrist Democrat we're going to hear I think about. think more will get in? I mean, I've so seen the Eric Holder name thrown out there, Deval Patrick of Massachusetts. I, th- I think if, if, if Biden continues to, to, have, to have difficulty, has greater difficulty, th- there's going to be somebody else that we'll see. And I would think it should you be somebody a, who... You have a name, sir? <laughs> well, so the, I'll describe the kind of person who, who would, would, would fit. Uh, it's somebody who can bring the country together. The problem looking at the field is that other than Biden, it's hard to imagine Elizabeth Warren uniting the country, you know, for all of her strengths. So uh, I, you know, somebody who served in the military, somebody who has that kind of national security credit, but I'll bet we'll have other hmm. late, late wow. entry personnel. I got to tell you guys, I I don't think David Ignatius has insider knowledge here. I think that the Democrats are starting to get a little bit freaked out about Elizabeth Warren's rise. You you know, they're they're now trying to juxtapose Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. The the media, younger members of the media are now trying to make Buttigieg happen, thinking that Buttigieg somehow or another, uh, he will be the rival for Joe Biden and that he will beat Elizabeth Warren. They're desperately concerned about Joe Biden. And here's why. All of this goes back. You got to remember this. This all goes back to the upshot polling from the New York Times we talked about last week that the New York Times does polling of battleground states among voters and finds that Elizabeth Warren does horribly against Donald Trump in battleground states. And they got to win these battleground states that Joe Biden does best. Elizabeth Warren does worse. And Joe Biden is floundering around out there. Um, Let me play you some audio from uh, Sam Stein, uh, the the Huffington Post left-wing correspondent. He was on TV this weekend. Listen to this. case is this, which is uh, you have a field where Joe Biden, although the polls show him still maintaining his lead, has performatively not done as well as many modern-minded Democrats and established-minded Democrats had hoped. (laughs) Not doing as well as they'd hoped, even though he's in the lead. And then you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who obviously are two progressive liberals, who are kind of splitting that lane and attaching themselves to a Medicare for all policy that these establishment-minded Democrats feel is a election, you know, albatross, basically. But doesn't that help Joe Biden? Doesn't that help Joe Biden to have 
Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders splitting the progressive vote so that Joe Biden benefits? It seems to me that that would help Joe Biden. It seems to me that that should help Joe Biden. It it seems to me that uh, it's a good thing for Joe Biden that that's happening. And yet they're all freaking out about Joe Biden. And, and yet, I, you know, I got to go back to this clip from the other day. Let me let me find it real quick in, in my soundboard. Uh, yeah, here it is. Here it is. Uh, Paul Begala, who I think gave the most insightful analysis of Mike Bloomberg entering the field. And I want you to listen to what he says about Biden's polling. I, I suspect what we saw in that in that clip with Kate Baldwin. I think that the, the mayor is probably right when he presumed he couldn't get through the Democratic primary process. Truth is, if he stands on a stage with Donald Trump, I think he matches up very well. He's actually a businessman. He's actually a billionaire. He's actually a philanthropist. He's all the things that Trump pretends to be, but is not. And I think that works very well. He's got to get through a Democratic primary, though. Amanda's right. He does have a great reservoir of goodwill for having funded uh, climate and particularly on gun safety. I was in Virginia, uh, too. I lived there, and I was there Tuesday night uh, for the big election. And the, the folks from Moms Demand, from every town, these groups that, that have been working, and many of them funded by Bloomberg, they might really love him. But that's not going to be enough. I, I, we'll see. I mean, I, I'm all for more people running, Here particularly if they are billionaire, hire a lot of consultants like I used to be. But I just have a hard time seeing him being able to, to pull together. Uh, I will say Joe Biden started the race the day he announced he's at 28. You know where he is today? 28. Mm. We keep waiting for him to collapse. Everybody presumes, including me, I keep thinking, gee, he's going to fade. The, the resilience of Biden's coalition has been pretty impressive to me so far. Yes. Uh, I Honestly, I think that is probably uh, you. You can dislike Paul Begala. I actually happen to know the guy and, and like him, even if we disagree on politics. Um, but you, you can't dismiss his analysis. His analysis there is totally solid. He is absolutely legitimately right. Biden's coalition is holding strong. Bernie's is holding strong. Elizabeth Warren's is holding strong. And that's an advantage to Biden because Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are fighting over the same pool of people. And to some degree, even Buttigieg is. Buttigieg, uh, the mayor from South Bend, on surface seems to be more moderate. But when you probe him, you, you get a deeply progressive candidate, except on issues like Medicaid for all. Otherwise, he's he's a pretty stereotypical progressive. Joe Biden is the guy who wants to bring people together. He is the guy that David Ignatius is talking about, the guy with the national security street cred who wants to heal the nation and bring us all together. Uh, if you believe that, uh, he, he's the only one on the Democratic side right now who can even make a claim for that. And I'm not sure that having another Democrat jump into the race is actually really going to help the Democrats. It's just going to crowd the field a little further. But you know what? I am of the opinion, even though it's it's widely acknowledged that the reason Mike Bloomberg thinks he can get in is because of Joe Biden and Joe Biden's failures, I genuinely think that the more people get in, the more people helps Joe Biden. A crowded field is an advantage for Joe Biden because it's harder for anyone else to get the attention. He's holding steady at 50% or at 28%. Now, remember for people who say, well, what about Iowa? What about Iowa? You know, Bill Clinton did not win Iowa. Michael Dukakis did not win. Iowa. You don't have to win Iowa to get the Democratic nomination. In fact, Bill Clinton won, did, uh, lost Iowa and became president. 
And maybe that's going to be Joe Biden's model. What if Joe Biden actually is able to succeed in Iowa in a way the polls don't suggest? Polling in caucuses isn't very good. There's there's a way there for him to pull it off. Hello there. Um, yeah, 8779737425 is the number. Uh, remember in Roswell tomorrow is the, I'm trying to, to pull back up the story. They're having the service for the World War II veterans whose remains were not claimed. And there'll be burial at the Georgia National Cemetery as well. It was in the, the paper up in uh, I in Cherokee. I can't find the story now. I'm, I'm afraid. I just thought about that as we're in the break, and I didn't have enough time to go find the actual story. But uh, you can find it on my Twitter feed, I am sure, if you're interested in attending. Um, I, I want to spend just a moment here on the media cnn is still not covering the abc news epstein cover-up cnn has an entire tv show about the media and coverage of the media uh, with brian stetler and they're not actually really covering abc news's refusal to air the epstein interview to, to the extent they are they're, they're turning it into a right-wing hit job which is unbelievable uh, ABC News has a story today. They're pushing it hard on social media and elsewhere. Sign spelling out impeach. Adorn windows of a building overlooking President Trump's speech at New York City's Veterans Day Parade. They're covering that, but they're not covering Jeffrey Epstein. You know, Megyn Kelly on Instagram and YouTube did an interview with the young lady at CBS News who was fired, who says she's not the one who leaked the video. And, and Project Veritas, James O'Keefe's group, has released a letter from someone within ABC News who says he's still at ABC News and, and says that uh, he did it himself. He's the one who leaked it, not this girl. The girl admits she tagged that portion of the interview in the ABC News file. ABC presumed she was the leaker. Uh, and now someone at ABC has come forward and said, nope, she's not the leaker. You pressured CBS to fire the wrong person. Oh, Hush, Siri. Downside of Siri is she turns on at the most inopportune moments. The most inopportune moments. It, it, this is just, it's fascinating to me. It, it is a reason why people can't trust the media. David Limbo and I talked about this earlier in the show. Um, about the lack of trust in the media on the right. And it, there's a reason conspiracy theories run rampant on the right. And frankly, uh, some of those conspiracy theories have, have turned out to be true. It very much does appear that uh, the Christopher Steele dossier was a Democratic opposition research thing the Russians got wind of and helped feed information designed to make the president look bad. The, the, the so-called P-tape was actually real, but it wasn't Donald Trump. It was a, a, a fictitious thing created by the Russians and fed into the Steele dossier. And the Republicans were saying this and the media was dismissing, no, this is credible. You had members of the mainstream media go and work for Fusion GPS after years in the media exposing themselves as left wing hacks of course the you know the most staggering thing actually is not that the right distrusts the media but that so much of the left now distrusts the media that's that's really the most impressive thing here is how much of the left no longer trusts the media the media gets these stories wrong and the epstein story actually helps buttress that case that so much of the left in this country um, hates the right for relying on fox news fox news is the only news outlet 
covering the Epstein matter. And I don't know whether Epstein killed himself or not. I got to say, there, there are a whole lot of coincidences that you got to believe to say he he committed suicide, uh, particularly in light of this autopsy report that's come out. But regardless, it's totally understandable by so many people are skeptical. And the media feeds into that. The media feeds into the loss of credibility overall, uh, given its behavior on this stuff. Again, ABC News won't cover the Epstein matter, but we'll cover people putting up an impeach poster in a building in New York City for the president. The resistance against the president has just absolutely polluted the media's credibility. See you guys tomorrow.